Could you please turn your Bibles back to that passage we read earlier in Acts chapter 10? Acts chapter 10, this is where we will be largely dealing with tonight um, in the sermon. But um, most of you will know what this here is. This is called the Fox's Book of Martyrs. Some, many of you will have a copy of it. And I thought I could bring it along, especially seeing it's Reformation Sunday. So this is his book. Now this copy here is not quite as large as the original. They say that the original was 2,000 pages long. Mine's only 373, so mine's quite a bit smaller than the finished copy was back whenever this man wrote it. His name's John Fox. He lived between 1517 and 1587. And his work was to compile all the accounts of all the different martyrs, right from the resurrection of Jesus Christ the whole way through until the reign of Queen Elizabeth, which began on the 17th of November, 1558. So... It's just really a book of accounts of all those who died um, for the Lord Jesus Christ. And there was a quote in it, and I wanted to bring bring it to you this evening. And this is it. The word martyr comes directly from the Greek meaning witness. In those early days of the church, many followers of Jesus Christ took their witness to him and the power of his resurrection to the point of sacrificing their own lives. The first martyr was Stephen stoned to death by an angry mob for teaching the claims of Jesus. So thousands of, thousands of Christian martyrs down through, the, through history, they are called martyrs because they are bearing witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have this in our passage this evening. Look uh, there in verse 39. And we are witnesses of all things which he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they slew, and hanged on a tree. So there's three occasions when we have this word witness in this, in this passage that we read. And the word witness that we have here it comes from the Greek word martos, or where we get, as we've read from the, the quote in this book here, it's martyr. That's where we get the word martyr from. It really is just simply means witness. So over here in verse 39, the, the apostles were saying they were witnesses of what Jesus Christ had done when he, was, when he was here on the earth and when he went to die there on the cross. Then if you look with me at verse 41, not to all the people but unto witnesses chosen before of God. So they're witnesses of Christ's resurrection. But then we also have it in verse 43. To him give all the prophets witnesses, or sorry, to him give all the prophets witness that through his name whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sin. So we have that word again, witness, only this time it's in verb form, but it's the same word, and it means the same things, bearing witness to something or someone. So the word witness itself, it's really a reference to, uh, in the same way as we use a witness, say, for a court situation. So if someone's being witness in court, he's just testifying of what he knows and what he has seen in a certain instance. And it also then, we know... Uh, the witness can, then also has this added thought of what we've been thinking about to witness unto Jesus Christ, even to the point where you're willing to lay down your life for the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, now we know that this is true of many of the, the prophets and even especially of the, the apostles. We know, and I was looking through the book uh, 
John Fox, and if you have a copy of it and you can read it up when you go home, you will discover that he maintains that all of the apostles in the New Testament died at martyr's death one way or the other, apart from, as he says, the apostle John. But again, not for the lack of trying. They, he says that they tried, they, they put him in a, like some sort of container that was filled with boiling oil, and they put him inside it, but he says somehow, miraculously, he came out of again, and he was okay, and then he was put on the Isle of Patmos. So it wasn't that they didn't try to kill the Apostle John, but they, they all, apart from him, received the martyr's death. And this is just simply a fulfillment of what Christ told, told his disciples in Matthew chapter 23, verses 34 and 35. Wherefore, behold, I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them ye shall kill and crucify. Some of them shall ye scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city, that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, son of Berechias, whom you slew between the temple and the altar. So see here that these people dying was only a fulfillment of what Jesus Christ said would happen. And this was the same of the New Testament saints, but it was also the same of the Old Testament prophets, which we've been reading about in verse 43. To him give all the, witness, the prophets witness. And the same with them. Many of them in the Old Testament, we read of them dying a martyr's death. Now, they weren't killed simply because they had a bad personality and people didn't like them. They were killed because of their message. The message that they were bringing, they were bearing witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. And they didn't like the message and that is what I want to deal with you deal this evening with in verse 43, the message of the martyrs. And I want to think um, specifically tonight about how the, 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 the martyrs of the Old Testament, they all witnessed to the same thing. So we're going to think of the witness, the message of the martyrs. And the first thing I want to look at with you this evening is they... they a problem that they all highlighted. In their message, there was a problem that they all highlighted. And you'll see this from a verse 43. Read it again. To him give all the prophets witness that through his name, whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins. Now, you can't have remission of sins. You can't have your sins taken away if you didn't have any sin. So the message that all of, them, all of the Old Testament prophets, not just even... The, the ones we've recorded in the scriptures, the writers, but also all of the Old Testament, all Old Testament prophets who came with a message from God, as, as we, read, we read of our Savior saying, right from Abel to Zacharias, all of, all of them men who just simply bore testimony to the message that God had given to them. And they all had the same message, and they all highlighted the same problem, and the problem was sin. And the result of their sin, and that would be the judgment of God against them. So we read of this, first of all, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 17. So this is right from the beginning. This is before there was any sin in the world. God himself gave this warning, and he gave it to Adam in the garden. Genesis 2, 17. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. So here we see God was warning man that sin would bring consequences, that sin would have, um, would bring his punishment. And he says, the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. And 
man did die. We read then of that. He died spiritually in the garden. But then we read of almost 900 years later, Adam died. And as we all know, death is a reality um, in life. But from that point on, from the Garden of Eden, right the whole way through, the Saviour then sent Old Testament prophets to witness and to highlight this problem to the people that they were sinners before a holy God. And their, ma- their message was the wrath of God that they had sinned against him. Um, first of all, I want to think of some, some other prophets that, that spoke this message. So we have in Psalm 14, verses 1 to 3, it says this, To the chief musician, a psalm of David, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand to seek God. They are all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. So here, the prophet David, he brought a message from God and he was, he was telling the people that God looks down from heaven and when he looks into the soul of every single person, not just in David's day, but right from the beginning of the world, right to this very day, and will until the end of this world, he looked down to see if there is any that's seeking after God. And here is the verdict. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Not one seek that, sought after God. And we are all sinners. We are all filthy. There is no such thing as a clean sinner. We are all filthy before the sight of a holy God. And the preacher in Ecclesiastes 7.20 also said this. For there is not a just man upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. So all of us here this evening, we are all guilty of the same thing. We all have the same problem. And that problem is sin. What is the result of this sin? Read this in Isaiah 59 and 2. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. So we see that iniquities or sin separates us from God. We are separated from God that we cannot come to him. There is a great gulf fixed between us and God that no man can bridge, nor does man want to bridge it. He he loves his sin and he wants his sin. So no man wants to come to God. But there's this great separation between us and God. And what's the result of this separation? Ezekiel 18 and 4 tells us, The soul that sinneth, it shall die. So we see here, when we put all of these verses together, we see that all of us here are sinners. We are separated from God, that we cannot make our way back to Him. And as a result of our sin, we will suffer the punishment of God. And we shall die, not just physical death, but eternal death forever and all, for all eternity. For it tells us in Romans chapter 1 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and, and on, all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. So we see the wrath of God is revealed against all those who sin against him. And it is an awful punishment. And as for you today, if you're still in your sin, if you haven't put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will face this awful punishment from God. And what will it be for you to stand before the Almighty God, as we were thinking about a little this morning? Luke 13, 27, the Saviour says, I tell you, I know, I know you not whence ye are. Depart from me, all ye workers of iniquity. 
there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth when ye shall see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and you yourselves thrust out. So when the day of eternity, the day of judgment comes, the, the verdict from God, from Jesus himself, well, he will say, depart from me. You will enter into hell and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth and you'll be thrust out. You'll, you, you'll see the others, the prophets who we're talking about this evening, you'll see them in the kingdom of God, but you will be thrust out and there will be no way back once you have been punished by God in hell and the lake of fire. There is no coming back. That is God's punishment upon you for all eternity. So this is the problem that all of these Old Testament prophets highlighted. It was the problem of sin. But that is not where they left it because that is not the gospel. The gospel isn't just telling us that we're all sinners and we have judgment. Rather, the gospel is good news and is the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the second thing I want to deal with this evening. And that is the person who was the theme of their message. So look again at our text, verse 43. To him give all the prophets witness that through his name, whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins. So they were preaching about a person. You'll notice there in that verse all the, pro the pronouns to him, then later on his name, and then believeth in him. So there is message, their message is focused on a person. And who is that person? Well, Peter has told us already in the passage to him in verse 43. He says, and that's linking us back to um, verse 38 how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth so the person that they were preaching was the Christ that was to come and it was the Lord Jesus Christ that was their message yes the man's problem is his sin but God has his answer to our problem and that answer is found in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and Peter here was telling Cornelius and his household that the, the Old Testament prophets they spoke of Christ. They spoke of the Messiah to come. So that when the Lord Jesus Christ did come, when they looked at the Lord Jesus Christ and they looked at the Old Testament scriptures, they all joined in and all fit it in very nicely and it was all in perfect harmony. So that is why these Old Testament prophets, they prophesied of Jesus Christ. So we will be able to identify, yes, Jesus is the Messiah who's come to take away our sin. But what was the focus? So these people were preaching about the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. But what did they say about him? Well, they focused on two main areas. They focused on the person and work of the Messiah or um, who he would be and what he would do. So the first thing we're thinking about here is who he would be. Genesis 3.15, God himself tells us something about the Savior. And he said, and Genesis 3.15, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman. And between thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. So here we see in Genesis 3.15 that the saviour of the world was going to be a man of the seed of the woman. But then as scripture progresses, the, the picture becomes clearer and clearer. Genesis 22 and 18 tells us this. Um, and it's speaking to Abraham. In thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. So we see now a bit clearer that it's going to be of the seed of Abraham. Jeremiah then brings it clearer again. Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper, and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. In his days Judah shall be saved, and Israel shall dwell safely. 
And this is his name, whereby he shall be called the Lord our righteousness. So here Jeremiah has told us that God, he was, he was not only going to be a son of Abraham, but he was going to be a son of David. But he wasn't simply just going to be a man, because we needed more than a man to save us. We are told in the Old Testament that he was going to be both God and man. Isaiah reveals this to us in Isaiah 9 and 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And how important this is for us, if we are to be saved, that we have a man, not only a man, but one who is both man and God together in the one person. And we're thankful today that we have a saviour who is both God and man. So, because, as I've said, there's that big gulf fix between us. There's a separation between man and God because they're at enmity with each other. They're enemies, one with the other. But how can we be reconciled? Well, it must be through a mediator, one who is both God, that can bring God to us, but also is a man that can bring man to God. We need someone who is both God and man if we are to be saved. And that is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. So that is somewhat of his person, what they revealed about his person. But then they also told us about the, the Lord Jesus Christ, what he came to do. So uh, we have in Luke chapter 24, 25 to 27, the Savior speaking to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. And he was talking about these Old Testament prophets. What did they say about him? And he said this, O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now the scriptures referred to there, as many as will know, is the Old Testament scriptures, what we are talking about this evening. They witnessed how he had to suffer and then how he would enter into his glory. And Peter has, as we read down this passage this evening in Acts 10, he done the same thing. He dealt with the life, the death, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he was a witness of, and that's what these Old Testament prophets were witness to. It says, um, Peter has told us that he went about doing good, verse 38, and the Savior was one who was spotless and sinless, undefiled and separate from sinners, because he is the Lord our righteousness. We read of that in Jeremiah 23. But he was to be like the lamb. Those sacrifices in the Old Testament. They weren't allowed to be any blemish. They had to be lambs. Without blemish and without spot. But that's his life. Which is necessary for us. We need to have one. Who lived the perfect life. Because if he was a sinner. How could he save sinners? We needed someone who was perfect. Who could stay, who be put there in our place to suffer for us. But he didn't, wasn't only his life that the prophet said about, it was also his death. I would like you to turn, please, to the book of Psalms, Psalm 22. Psalm 22. And here's one of the clearest Old Testament prophecies we have. Concerning the Lord Jesus Christ and the work that he would do on the cross. And here it tells us in Psalm 22 of what the Saviour would suffer both at the hands of men and of God. Look at verse 8 please. Verse 7. All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying he trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. 
Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. So see here the mocking of the Jews. The Lord Jesus Christ suffered at the cross by the Jews in their cruel mocking of him, but also through by the Gentiles. Look at verse 16. For dogs have compassed me, the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. And how clear we see the cross. They pierced his hands and his feet. And the, speaking of the dogs here is a Jewish, uh, a Jewish term for the Gentile people. That it would be the Gentiles who would take the Saviour and would crucify him on the cross. But I think of all the things the Lord Jesus Christ suffered, he suffered the most at the hands of God himself. Because he was standing there as in our place and as, as our substitute. He took all of our sins and he bore the wrath of God for us on the cross. Look at verse 1. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? O oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not, and in the night season, and I am not silent. I think this is the worst thing our Saviour had to suffer. And it's unlike any other suffering he had to face. It's one thing to suffer mockery from men, and to suffer ill from, from ungodly men, and the awful pain he bore. But what a thing it is to be forsaken the Son of God who, was, who didn't know, who knew unbroken fellowship with God right up to this point, and here he had to cry, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And as I was preparing for this, I came across this quote from R.C. Sproul, and I thought it was very striking. He said, I've heard sermons about the nails and the thorns. Granted, the physical agony of crucifixion is a ghastly thing. But thousands of people have died on crosses, and others have had even more painful, excruciating deaths than that. But only one received the full measure of the curse of God while on a cross. Because of that, I wonder whether Jesus was aware of the nails and the thorns. I think that's, that quote really gets to the heart of it. That, yes, we're, we're, we're not minimizing the, the cross and all the physical agonies that brings. But to suffer the full wrath of an almighty God is that phrase that he says, I wonder whether Jesus was, was even aware of the nails and the thorns. So this reveals to us the awful punishment that our Savior bore on the cross for us. But I think... A passage like none other that shows us the cross in the Old Testament is Isaiah 53. Please turn there as well. Isaiah 53. That, this shows us so clearly the, the work that our Saviour was doing, why he was there on the cross. Look at verse 4, please, of Isaiah 53, verse 4. Surely he hath borne our griefs and cried our sorrows, Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. 
We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. And what a clear testimony Isaiah bore to what the Saviour would do on the cross. He wasn't there dying for his own sin. He was dying there because of our sin. That's why he was on the cross. The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Lord Jesus Christ was there as our substitute, dying in our place. That is why he died on the cross. And that is why he suffered the punishment there. To, to suffer in my place. To take away my sin as my substitute. Uh, please turn back again then to our text. Acts chapter 10. For yes, it is important that one took our sin. One who died for us. We, the punishment of sin is death. And we needed one to die in our place. But if we have only got a dead saviour, he's not a saviour at all. A dead saviour cannot do anything for us. But we praise God that he is not dead, but he is living. And he rose from the dead. And that is something Peter has made mention of here in Acts chapter 10 and verse 14. Him God raised up the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but unto witnesses chosen before of God, even to us, who did eat and drink with him after he rose from the dead. The Lord Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. He is not a dead saviour. He rose from the grave, victorious over death and hell. And again, this is something the Old Testament prophets spoke about. And there's several um, accounts of it, but we think especially the saviour talked about Jonah. In, in type, he said, as Jonah was in the, the belly of the whale three days and three nights, even so must the Son of Man be in, in the grave three days and three nights. We see, Jonah was a type, but in Psalm 16, verse 10, this is quite often the, the passage that the apostles spoke from. They said this, uh, it says this in Psalm 16, 10, For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. So the Saviour was not allowed to remain in the grave. And that is so important because if the Saviour didn't do the work that God had called him to, if he had have sinned on, on one occasion, he wouldn't have been raised from the grave. But when God raised the Son from the grave, it was a stamp of approval upon him that the Lord Jesus Christ had done all that is needed for us to be saved. So we can be sure that we can be saved because the Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead. That is why the, the, the doctrine of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so precious to us. Because without it our faith is in vain. We are still in our sin. But we're thankful tonight that Jesus had victory, victory over death and hell. And we can have forgiveness of sins. So this. So we've seen the problem that we have as, as sinners before a holy God. We have then the 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 person that the prophets spoke about in their message. But then, lastly, I want to think this evening about the promise that is attached to their message. So look again at verse 43. To him give all the prophets witness that through his name, whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins. So, yes, we have our sin, but we have an answer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the, and the, the answer... That, the Lord, that God gives to us is, in, is through the Lord Jesus Christ. What he has done on the cross as we've been just considering. But then there is a promise attached to their prophecies. They didn't just speak of a problem and the Lord Jesus Christ. But they told clearly the people in the Old Testament 
that if they were to believe in him, that they would receive remission of sins. And this is the heart of the gospel. This is the good news that we are thinking about this evening. The good news that we can have our sins taken away. We can have that gap that we were talking about removed. Because Jesus has bridged that gap. And all that come to him, all that put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, can be brought in friendship again with God Almighty. We don't need to die that eternal death which is in hell forever. We can have remission of sins. Whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins. You'll notice there it doesn't say whosoever believeth about him shall receive remission of sins. And I think that's important because some people will rely upon some knowledge that they have. Maybe some church, they go to church and they hear these things and they say, well, I believe about Jesus Christ. I believe that he was a real man. I believe he was sent from God. I believe he died on the cross to take, take away sin. I believe he rose again from the dead. And you may say, I agree with all these things. But James has told us that the devils believe these things. The demons believe all these things. And they're damned. And the same will be the case with you tonight. If you only believe about him, but you do not believe in him. As our text says in verse 43. Whosoever believeth in him. And that is very important. What does that, that we phrase mean, believeth in him? What is, that, what is that getting at? Well, it's not just, as I've said, believing about him, but it's rather thinking of words like resting and relying. If we are resting upon the Lord Jesus Christ, we're relying upon him for salvation. We are putting our faith in him as the only saviour. And it's not just that, but it's also um, giving into God, entrusting God with our eternity. That we trust in him that if we come to him, we turn from our sin and we believe in him. We, we give as it were our soul to God to keep it safe for all eternity. The promise is we will receive remission of sins. It's not good enough just to believe about him, but it's to have our faith in him. Trust in him. And, as I, and I was speaking to the young people um, a couple of weeks back and I was telling them this, this illustration of the man. I'm sure you have heard it all before. But I think it's helpful. The man who walked that tightrope and he walked up this uh, great drop and he came back and he asked the people, do you believe I could take you to the other side in this wheelbarrow? Because he'd already taken the wheelbarrow across and brought it back again. And they said, yes, we know you could take someone across there in that wheelbarrow. They, and they all agreed. But then he asked for a volunteer and no one was willing to volunteer to get in the wheelbarrow and to go across this tightrope because they, they believed they, they, they said, they thought, well, yes, you can take a man across, but I don't trust you to bring me across. But that is not how we should be with God. We don't just say, well, we believe that that's, he can take, he is the saviour. We must be willing to, for God, for Lord Jesus Christ, to save us from our sins. We have to rest upon him to take our sins away, that we can have remission of sins. So when we put our faith in him, we give our souls to him. The promise is that the prophets have given to us that we will receive remission of sins or sins will be taken away and that enmity from God will be removed. The last reference we have from the Old Testament tonight is found in Joel 2 and 32. Joel 2, 32. And it's the, the passage that Peter quoted in Acts uh, at the day of Pentecost. Joel chapter 2 and 32. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord 
shall be delivered. So that is the message that Peter then brought on the day of Pentecost. And he said this in Acts chapter 2 and 21. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So the promise, even from the Old Testament right through to today, the promise of the Old Testament is still the promise we can claim today that if we have our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved. There's a certainty we shall be saved. So I wonder tonight, will you turn from your sin and will you call on God for salvation? Will you be saved this evening? You are a sinner and you stand before God. That is your main problem this evening. It's your sin. You must have it dealt with. The wrath of God is against all those who commit unrighteousness. But there's an answer to our problem. That is found in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. The God-man who died and rose again to take away our sin. But we must have our faith in him. For if we do not believe in him, we cannot have salvation. So I plead with you this evening. If you hear this evening out of Christ, you know you're a sinner before a holy God. Turn to him this evening. Call upon him, even simply, like Peter did on that leg. Lord, save me. And the promise is that immediately Jesus will stretch forth his hand and he will catch you and save you and deliver you from your sin. The promise this evening is found in our text. Whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins. I pray that you will turn from your sin this evening and turn to the Lord Jesus.